Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And this morning, as our hearts have been prepared for God's Word through the singing of the Gospel and the reminders of Calvary, today the message is entitled, The Sufficiency of the Cross. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God together, and we're going to read Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13. This is just a continuation of what Paul has already said, beginning back in verse 8, as he's spoken about the sufficiency of Christ. And he writes this, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. God, we are unworthy to stand here in your presence. And we give you praise that only through Christ do we have any standing before you. We thank you that you sent him and that he willingly came from heaven and that he lived a perfect life and then he went to the cross and on that cross he died for our sins. And that because of the blood that he shed on Calvary, all our trespasses are completely forgiven. All our debts are canceled. And you have granted us salvation. We pray that now that Christ will be exalted as he has been through the songs that we have sung today, we pray that he will be exalted through the preaching of your word and that the Holy Spirit will demonstrate the power of the gospel unto salvation and that our hearts will be convicted of sin, that sinners will be drawn to him for the forgiveness of sin and that we will rejoice in such a great salvation and that you will conform us to the image of his name and that, God, that you would just empower your word, that you would cleanse my heart, that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit to faithfully explain this text, and that you would apply all the truths to our hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I, I want to begin just by thinking about the truth of Christ, our sufficiency. Because that's the theme of these last two weeks is Christ being our sufficient Savior. The challenge that is facing the Colossians was simply that they were being tempted to be drawn away from the gospel by trending ideas that were 
that they were being exposed to. And these things included mystical and or sensational experiences, encounters with the supernatural, new ideas that were on the marketplace in the realm of spirituality that promised deeper fulfillment, but a fulfillment that came out, would come outside of Christ and outside of the gospel. There is no shortage of that today. Even in our current moment, I would urge us to be discerning and to be wise and warn us of the grave danger of being carried away by emotive experiences, claims of outpourings of the Spirit, even movements of revival that do not herald the Word of God and the sufficiency of Christ in the Gospel. The Spirit of God exalts Christ. The Spirit of God exalts Christ through the sound preaching of the cross, leading to repentance and obedience. Just read 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. And that is what we want to proclaim today from this glorious passage. The centrality of the cross. Listen, church, nothing is more important and dearer to the Christian and to the church than the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, John Stott writes, is the symbol of our faith. The Christian faith is the faith of Christ crucified. There is no Christianity without the cross. Without the cross, we cannot be saved. The cross demonstrates the truth that you and I are incapable of saving ourselves. Christ had to die. And had He not died on that cross, every single one of us would perish in our sins and we would go to hell forever. That's how important the cross is. Without the cross, you have no rescue. You have no redemption. You have no forgiveness. You have no salvation without the cross. And that is the whole point of the gospel of Christ. is to bring us to God through the cross upon which He suffered and died. And that is why the key to this passage that you will see as we walk through it is this. Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for our complete salvation. That's what He wants this church to know. That's what He wants these believers to know. And that's what we need to walk away from this message today and this gathering today is walk out of this service knowing that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient for our complete salvation. And the reason that is is because there are three things that come to us through the cross. Our resurrection from God, our salvation from the, through the cross, and then lastly, our salvation through the cross, and then lastly, our victory in Jesus. Those are the three things that come to us through the cross. Those are the three reasons why the cross is sufficient. So let's just unpack that. Number one, our resurrection from God comes to us through the cross. Look at the text in front of us. Paul says, and you 
were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's talking to the believers there in the church and he's describing their lost condition apart from Christ. And he uses gruesome imagery of a rotting, decaying corpse. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Listen, a corpse has no life, no faculties, no capability Because it is a dead body. That's what a corpse is. The body, when we go to a funeral home and we see, uh, we go to a, a viewing and we walk into a funeral home, we see a body that has been made to look at peace and at rest. We would not want to walk in and see a body at the, at, at the way it, that body looked at the moment of its death. It would be horrible. And the, and the, and the reason why is because we don't want to see the awfulness of death. But a corpse has no life. There is no response. And therefore when Paul uses this analogy, what he's showing us is, is, is that to be spiritually dead is to be completely devoid of spiritual life and totally unresponsive to God. That was our state outside of Christ. Paul Washer states that to be dead in sin is to be totally unresponsive to God, but he adds one thought that I think is very important, and it means also to be totally responsive to every sinful impulse and stimulus. He's right. And in, in, in fact, we might imagine zombies in popular culture, right? That, that is, that is the condition of the unregenerate man outside of Christ. We are dead to God. We are dead to the gospel. We are dead to all spiritual things. But we're walking around gratifying every sinful and selfish desire and passion. That is the lost person's condition. And that was all of our conditions before God saved us. He says that we were dead in the uncircumcision of the flesh. Meaning, we were dead to God in our natures, in our very being. It's not just that we went about committing trespasses and committing sins, but we are rotten to the core spiritually. We are corrupt through and through. Every faculty of our humanity is completely ruined by sin. That includes our mind, our emotions, and our will. All of it. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, there are none righteous, not one. There is no one who possesses spiritual understanding. There is no one who will seek after God. And Paul goes on to say that there will be no, there is no one who will come to God. Because we are dead in our sins apart from Christ. No one loves God and no one chooses God because by nature we are completely depraved. Paul fully illustrates this in Ephesians 2 where he says and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience and then he goes on to describe that that in this deadness we walked according to the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our bodies 
And by nature, we're children of wrath. By nature, by our sinful, uncircumcised nature, we were children of wrath. You know why Paul uses all this language? Do you know why he goes to the most awful illustration that we could possibly imagine? A dead, rotting corpse? Because he wants us to understand that before we knew Christ, we were totally helpless and utterly hopeless. And that's what makes the next phrase so amazing. Our condition was hopeless and helpless, but for God. Look at the text. In him, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Do you see that? Paul is unequivocal in his declaration. It is God who made you alive with him. You didn't make yourself alive. Christian, listen to me. You didn't make yourself alive. You didn't choose to be alive. You didn't will yourself to spiritual life. The text says, it doesn't say that you cooperated with God and then God cooperated with you and then he did his part and he was just waiting on you to do your part. It, it is telling us that we had no part. We were dead to our in our sins, dead to God, and it is God who raised us from the dead. He made you alive. He raised you from the dead. One cannot help but think, as many have used throughout the years, the illustration of Lazarus in the tomb in John 11. You remember the story, remember? Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for four days. He was wrapped in burial clothes like a mummy. I mean, he was tightly placed into that tomb. And do you remember what Jesus did? He walked up to that tomb. And as he stood there, Lazarus being dead for four days, his body was rotting. It, in fact, King James says, and he stinketh. That's how dead he was. And when Jesus walked up to that tomb, what did he do? He cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And suddenly in the darkness of that tomb, Lazarus came back to life his heart began to beat, his eyes opened beneath those grave clothes, and he got up, he walked out, and he walked out alive. That is a picture of regeneration. That is a picture of what happened to you the moment you were saved. You were made alive. Regeneration. It is the decisive act of God alone whereby the Spirit called you out of spiritual death, gave you life through the gospel, and you were born again. And in that moment, you believed on Christ. And in believing on Christ, you repented of your sin, and you were united to Him. You were what? Made alive by God. And notice what the text says. It says, and you were made alive with Him. And there is the connection to the cross. Our resurrection spiritually, our new life in Christ is connected to the cross because you have been made alive by God, by the decisive act of God with Christ. We are made alive with Jesus because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And because Jesus lives, you too live and you will live forever 
and that only because of the cross. So we were dead to sin, in our sins. We were made alive. But then notice the third thing with this spiritual life that we were given. It says we are forgiven. See the text? It says, again, read it. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. And, and, and look at this. Having forgiven all us all our trespasses. At the moment of your spiritual resurrection, the moment of your conversion, that moment that you believe the gospel, you receive the first gift of salvation. What's the first gift in our salvation? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And notice how Paul words it. He states the certainty of forgiveness. We are forgiven. It is a done thing. It is a complete thing. Your union with Christ by faith it, it guarantees all the blessings of the gospel for certain. In other words, Paul says you have, all of your trespasses are forgiven. You have this uncertainty, it's been done, and your forgiveness is not dependent on your ability to keep forgiveness or to stay saved or to remain alive. In Christ, you are guaranteed the forgiveness of sin. But notice he states not just the certainty of forgiveness, he states the scope of forgiveness. How many trespasses are forgiven? All. How many does he say? All. Not just some, not just a few. All of our trespasses are forgiven. No matter how great, no matter how small, no matter how known, no matter how unknown, all of them have been forgiven. Let me ask you, what would that include for you? What does your mind go to? What sins have you committed in your past? Where, what, what life did you come from? And here's what the text says. Here's what Paul says. That because of our resurrection through God, your sins are all forgiven. Completely forgiven. Maybe you're here today and you think, well, you know, there's just no way that that can be true. But the text says it. All of our trespasses have been forgiven. You can be forgiven through Christ. So that leads us to a question then. Have you been raised from spiritual death? Have you recognized your state before God? That you are helpless and that you are hopeless and that the only means of salvation is Christ and what he did on the cross? And have your eyes been opened, your spirit awakened? Have you been born again? Are you alive to God? Have you received forgiveness of all your sin? That's what we have to ask ourselves when we think about the truth of our resurrection from God. And so what Paul says is, is that the sufficiency of the cross guarantees our resurrection from God. But notice Paul continues his thought to a second point. The sufficiency of the cross means that we have salvation through the cross. We not only have resurrection from God. Look at the text. We have salvation through the cross. Verse 14. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So the question that we should ask is, how? okay, so the, it, God has made us alive, Right? having been forgiven of all of our trespasses. And so when we read that statement, having forgiven all of our trespasses, the question that we should ask is, how can a holy God 
How can a God who is so holy and so righteous, how can a God who is so transcendent and glorious, so just and perfect, how can this God forgive the wicked and the guilty? There's only one answer. The cross. That's the only answer. And this is what God did with our sin through the cross. You ready? Two things. One, the debt was canceled on the cross. That's what it says. He canceled the record of debt. How were we forgiven? He canceled the record of debt, record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Here Paul uses financial language. The record is the, is a debt that's like an IOU. We actually, we actually talked about this as we were reading the catechism in the beginning of the service, right? About the law of God. The record of debt that Paul's referring to is an IOU. We have all signed an IOU to God, and we owe God perfect obedience. That's what we owe God. But here's the problem, and that's what, that, that's what we, that's what Pastor Dan was talking about there when he transitioned us to the next song. We owe God perfect obedience, but we have failed. And now, with every sin, listen, with every sin, an infraction of God's holy law, or breaking of the Ten Commandments, what the text is implying is, is that our accounts are overdrawn. And now there is a record of debt, because we have not paid God what we've owed. Instead, we have borrowed and borrowed and borrowed and borrowed through our sin and disobedience. And now, there is a record of debt. Hear me. The books have been kept. Have you ever overdrawn a bank account? When you overdraw that bank account, you usually, I mean, it's like within a day, you get a notice in the mail, right? It's amazing how fast those can come. And the notice will say, your account is overdrawn and you have insufficient funds. That is the, uh, that is, that was our condition. The debt. We have overdrawn. And we have made purchase upon purchase with nothing to pay for it. The record of debt here that Paul says, that refers to is it refers to the files that have been kept. Think about this. Of our overdrawn account. Every sin that we have committed, every law that we have broken, every evil that we have plotted, every lust that we have pondered, all the pride that we have flaunted, all the treason that we have waged against God. Hear me, all of it, all of it, every bit of it is on record. Are you getting a sense of this? Imagine, file upon file, containing every word, every thought, every motive, and every deed. Are you feeling how big this is? Can you imagine how high that record of debt must be? Can you imagine? Even one single day of recorded sin. I don't know about you. But just one day, one single day of recorded sin would fill this room from wall to wall and from floor to ceiling. 
And on every single one of those files, just imagine this room being filled with every record of every sin that you have committed. And on every record is stamped a stamp that says, account past due. But we got to keep going here. Because the text says, with its legal demands. Did you see that? You know what that means? That means all accounts must be reckoned. Paul says they stood against us. In other words, what Paul wants us to do is is think of this, this mountain of debt that we owe. And our sin looms over us, casting a shadow of guilt. And we have no way of paying the debt. We are guilty. It is too high to measure. And it is too great to weigh. And it is impossible to reckon. But we must pay it in full. You and I must pay for our sins and the debts we have accumulated to God. The debts, the records. But Paul says something amazing here. Do you see it? The text says he canceled the entire record of debt and the legal demands of justice. He canceled it. How? Well, the demands were satisfied at the cross. Look at the text. It says, this he set aside. All of these records he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So you might say then, okay, so what happened to all of these records? What happened to them all? Was there some kind of mistake? We were, maybe it's, maybe it's just we weren't that bad, right? Maybe that's it. Did he just dismiss our sin? Did he ignore it? Did he sweep it under the cosmic carpet? No. No, that's, that's not what he says. Look at the text. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, there's an image there that you have to pick up on. Now, do you remember when Christ was crucified on the cross? On crucifixions, when the Romans would crucify people, they would take a plaque. And on that plaque, what they would do is, is they would write the crime that the guilty criminal was guilty of. And then they would hang it over his head on that cross. And on the cross that Jesus was suspended on, do you remember what it said? There was no sin. There was no crime. Do you know what it was? All it said was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So Paul takes that image and what he says is, is actually, do you want to know what was on that plaque that hung above Jesus Christ's head when he was on the cross? What crime was he guilty of? Why was he suspended there? Paul is actually using that image to show us that what was nailed to that cross was not his sin, was not his crime, but it was our sin. It was our crimes. It was our debts. And he took them and he bore them and he went to the cross and he paid the debt that we could never pay. And he canceled the debts completely cursed smitten and forsaken by god christ nailed the record of our sin to the cross of calvary he gave his life for us and with one triumphant cry he declared it is finished and what that means is god's eternal perfect justice was forever satisfied All the demands of righteousness are completely fulfilled. 
And do you know now what happens to this room full of records that have stacked up for the, for the believer? Here's what happens. The clerk of heaven, <laughs> the clerk of heaven takes these and stamps on every single record of our sin paid in full by the blood of the Lamb. And because Jesus paid it all, the records, they're gone. And they are removed as far as the east is from the west. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. And to be pardoned means the records are gone. I mean, they have been dispersed and they have disappeared because Christ has died in our place. But I want to take this just one step further. Because of the cross, all accounts are not just brought to zero. And all accounts have been brought to zero and have now been filled with an endless supply of riches to the infinite degree as mercy and grace now flow in a crimson tide from the cross of Calvary, bringing salvation to all of us. So it's not just that the debts are gone. It's not just that the accounts are brought to zero. But in Christ, beloved friend, you have everything you need for salvation and spiritual life through the cross Upon which he died. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more. So dear friend. How great are your sins this morning? As you sit and you think about what we just said. What this text is pointing to. I mean, how great would that would those files go up? I mean, I can't imagine. In no way would I even want my thoughts or my motives or anything to ever be put on a screen and just shown to everyone. It would reveal our for all of us. It would reveal the debts, the records that stand against us. But yet, the truth of the gospel is that we have a great Savior who has forgiven us of every trespass, who has canceled every debt, and has now filled us with everlasting peace. And oh, that every person in this room would consider all that you possess because of the cross of Christ. That is why we can sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. Oh my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Can you sing that this morning? Can you lay your head tonight on the pillow and know that all of your sin, not in part, but all of it, all of it, even the things that keep coming and haunting you and disturbing you, all of it has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. You don't have to carry it anymore because he bore the wrath of God on the cross so that you could be completely forgiven. When I contemplate that reality, how absolutely undeserving I am of not only to stand here and tell you that I'm a Christian, 
But to even stand here and preach this gospel. I am an unworthy wretch. Who has been forgiven of sin. And all the debts have been paid. What a savior. So our resurrection from God comes through the cross. Our salvation from God comes through the cross. And the last verse of this passage tells us of our victory in Jesus. Look what it says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, you know what I find intriguing by this? Is he still talking about the cross? You see this? The very emblem of suffering and shame is now the trophy of our salvation. I mean, it's just glorious that all of our victory, every song that we sing, every praise that we lift is because of the cross. And so what Paul does is he just simply elaborates on the sufficiency of the cross. And he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And so I ask the question, well, what does Paul mean when he says the powers and authorities? And I I think what we could say is, is that it includes all the supernatural powers that are detailed in Colossians 1. The rulers and authorities, right? That Christ is above all of them. All the rulers, all the authorities, all the thrones, all the dominions. But I don't think that Paul's just talking about earthly powers and dominions. I believe that he's talking about spiritual powers. I believe he's talking about Satan and demons and and all of the evil forces that have been unleashed into the world in the fall. Sin, the world, the flesh. Ephesians 6, the fallen flesh, I should say. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and against cosmic powers over the pre- this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so these forces include demons, even humans, governments, systems, that all align with Satan and oppose Christ, the church, and the gospel. And at the cross... You saw all of these forces come together. The force of false religion. The force of evil government. The hands of wicked men. All of it came together against Christ. And what Paul says here is that these powers and authorities are driven by sin, guilt, fear, and death. They all were unleashed at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus did two things. That summarize our victory. He disarmed them. That's the first thing that he did. Now, if you're a pagan, and this is true if you're in other parts of the world today, there are people in other cultures, and, and what they do, they have witch doctors, and they have other like religious gurus, because they think that there are spirits out there that are around them to vex them and to torture them and all sorts of things. And so it would have been no different here in a pagan culture. And what Paul wants them to know is you don't have to worry about all that. You don't have to worry about any power at all because Christ has disarmed them. And, and the language here is like an enemy army being stripped of weapons and armor. 
captured and chained. On the cross, what happens is, is there is a great reversal that goes from defeat to triumph. There's a victory. The intent of the devil was to shame the Son of God. Stripped naked, crucified before all, openly in shame. And so the, 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 the intent there was for him to be put to shame. But what Paul says is actually the reverse happened. Because when he hung and bled on that cross, he reversed this through his substitutionary death. And what Jesus did on Calvary is he put to open shame everything that originates with the devil. Sin, guilt, and death itself. The ruler of this world, John says, has been judged. And he has been shamed at the cross. And so what Christ does at the cross is he removes every claim our enemies have. Every claim of the devil, the world, even our guilty conscience. He has removed those claims. And therefore, every guilt in life Every power in hell has been stripped of any threat to us. So there is no demon, no spirit, there's, there's no person, no government that presents a threat. And so today, if you are living in guilt, if you are living in fear, if you are living in superstition, if you are living in vain religion, you need to look at the cross because Christ has disarmed all of that. There is no power that can now stand against you because he has disarmed the forces of evil. But he, but, but he goes one step further. Look at the text. It says that by triumphing over them, he not only disarmed the forces of evil, he defeated the forces of evil. The forces of evil are, are defeated in the picture here is of an ancient Roman general in a victory parade. The conqueror riding at the front in his chariot. And behind him are his troops. And behind his troops are all the spoils of war. All the captured enemies. All the vanquished kings. All the spoils of battle. And what Paul uses here is, is this idea of Christ, the risen conqueror, who has defeated the forces of evil at the cross. And now, what has happened is, Christ is the victor. And what is, again, strange is that the cross now has become a chariot of victory, a throne of glory, because through the cross, sin is defeated, and through the empty tomb, death is destroyed. And now Christ leads his people in a joyful parade of grace to celebrate the total victory that we have in him. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 35, listen to this. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's threatening you? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, Paul says. Those things aren't threats to us. Why? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He has conquered every enemy is what verse 13 is saying. Every enemy past, present, and future. And that is why we proclaim through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our union by, with him that we have complete victory in Jesus. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so believer, think about the, think about the implications of this. For us as Christians, stop living in defeat. Stop living in despair. Stop living in doubt. Christ is victorious. He has triumphed over the grave. Crown Him with many crowns. We should be the most joyful people in the universe because we have a King who has defeated sin, who has defeated death, who has defeated the devil, has raised us from the dead, has forgiven us of our sins, has canceled our debts and rules and reigns in heaven even now as we sit here and we worship together. We have complete victory in Jesus. Are you living in the triumph of the gospel? Are you? Lost person, have you experienced victory by fleeing to Christ for salvation? Think about it. Victory completely through Christ. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther, and I forget where it is he wrote this, but he's talking about the way we as Christians sometimes can live in guilt. And that old enemy accuses us, right? Oh, there's no way you could be a Christian. Oh, there's no way. How could anybody have thought that? How could any Christian have done that? There's no way you belong to him. And you know what Luther said? He said, when the devil throws our sins to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we should speak thus to him. I admit, I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. And his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall also be. You know why Luther said that? It's because he understood the sufficiency of the cross. Let me ask you, friend. Are you raised with Christ? Are you saved from your sins? Do you have victory in Jesus? Are you living in that victory? Today is the day of salvation. Because Christ's work on the cross is sufficient. And so today, as we close our time together, Dan's going to come... And this will just be right before we actually observe Lord's Supper together. He's going to come and he's going to, uh, our worship team's going to lead us in a song of response. And, and, and what I want you to think about is this. Do you have complete salvation in Christ? This will be our time to respond. To come to him. To come to Christ. To come to the cross. To live at the cross. To glory in the cross. The cross that is sufficient for our salvation. And so let's stand. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. And then we will sing. Father, we bow our head before you and we thank you for the sufficient work of Jesus on the cross. We do not deserve your grace. We deserve hell and judgment and wrath. But through Christ and Christ alone, our debts can be paid. And our salvation can be complete. 
For those here today that are not saved, God, may you draw them to salvation. May today they realize how great their sin is, but how great Christ, a Savior Christ is. And may they flee to him and to his cross. And may we as Christians, every believer in this room, may we not try to find fulfillment and renewal or anything else outside of Christ and the gospel. Help us today to live in the cross to glory in the cross, to be refreshed by the cross, to be revived by the cross, and for that to overflow from our lives as we go out into the world, that we will live holy lives, obedient lives, and lives that bear witness to your grace, all because of the sufficiency of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's